Hey, Linux Journal readers, I am Catherine Druckmann talking to Doc Searles, our Editor-in-Chief, and Elizabeth Ranieris, Global Policy Counsel at Identity Startup Evernim. Elizabeth, thank you for joining us today to talk about all things uh, identity, really. Identity, privacy, anything and everything. Could you tell us a little bit more about who you are and what your interest is in open source software and privacy issues? Yeah, sure. Uh, thanks for having me. Um, so as you mentioned, I am serving as global policy counsel at um, a digital identity startup called Evernim. Um, but I am trained as a data protection and privacy lawyer. Uh, I have practiced as a government attorney focused on cybersecurity uh, with two major international law firms focused on emerging technologies um, in the context of data protection and privacy and uh, in-house at two uh, technology startups. And so I really come at law and policy from all angles. Um, I am now very much working at the intersection of emerging technologies like blockchain and AI and machine learning and all these uh, data protection and privacy issues that are also coming to the forefront. So it's very exciting time. I, I, I want to add here that one reason uh, I, I wanted to recruit uh, Elizabeth to be on this podcast is that I have never met a lawyer who agrees, not only agrees more with everything we've been standing for for a long time at Linux Journal and in my own other work um, with Customer Commons, with Project VRM at the Bertman Klein Center and in other places, um, but, but who also is a, a great resource. Uh, she. She leads me in many ways that uh, I'm not used to being led and very well. I should <laughs> so I, I don't think there's a lawyer on earth that knows more about this stuff or, or knows more of the right things the right way. Let me put it that way. <laughs> so, it's high praise coming from Doc. Your great knowledge <laughs> like agrees it. with my opinions. Yeah. Sounds promising. Yeah. Thanks, Doc. Okay. <laughs> very, very kind. No pressure. So, so um, uh, be, any number of subjects we could jump into are too big and and it's going to be we're not going to do them full service by being brief about it but we live at a a very interesting time uh in the sense that you should be condemned to live in interesting times um with with the gdpr i, mean, I, I like to dwell on the gdpr in part because i was <clears throat> i was a great enthusiast for the gdpr as it approached and even though i'm somewhat of a a Silicon Valley libertarian in some ways it, it, who believes that most laws protect yesterday from last Thursday um, and are going to last too long and cause more problems than they're worth. I really was looking forward to what the GDPR would do. I knew it would shake things up. But since it's come out, it's been, I think, in some ways more problematic than solutional. And, and you've been much more involved with the GDPR and with the lawmakers in Europe and the regulators there than I ever could imagine being. So I'd like to kind of get your angle on where we stand with it right now, what's going well, what's going poorly, um, in ways that maybe because the people who are listening to this, many of which are, uh, whose job is to implement this in some way, uh, can understand. And I'll be on mute because there's actually workers working around me at the moment <laughs> in our house. Yeah, sure. So, um, in many ways, you know, you've heard this doc, I have GDPR fatigue, um, because while it's sort of new and hot topic for a lot of people, especially in the U.S., um, the GDPR has been around for uh, really over eight years now. Um, the first draft 
uh, leaked in 2011 and, and the first official draft published in 2012. Um, and uh, I was in London at the time uh, of the first draft, completing my LLM at the London School of Economics and um, very much focused on, on data protection uh, in the context of information technology and IP. Um, and went into private practice in London um, and followed sort of draft after draft of the GDPR um, and watched it sort of watered down, uh, you know, with each successive draft by um, the ad tech lobby, by big tech, by um, various uh, actors in the, in the negotiations. So, um, you know, for a lot of people, the GDPR is sort of the gold standard right now. Um, you know, it's setting this, this global floor uh, for privacy and data protection. But uh, in actual fact, as I said, it's, it's quite a watered down version of, uh, of what we started with. Um, so, so what, did we, what did we lose? I'm wondering. Um, and I wonder what element other than gold it is now. Is it, is it <laughs> or, lead or is it? Um, <laughs> so. <laughs> yeah. So um, what we lost is uh, for those who were familiar with the right, with the, excuse me, with the law that came before it, which was the uh, data protection directive. Um, and it's important to understand the difference between a directive and a regulation. So a directive under European law um, it does not take direct effect. It has to be implemented by each member state in national law, which often results in wild divergencies between, uh, between different countries uh, within the EU. So the idea of the GDPR being a regulation um, was that a regulation does take direct effect. And the idea is that, you know, with, of course, there are a few limited exceptions, but for the most part, uh, is meant to have a more uh, consistent application across the member states, um, less variation and, and fewer, uh, uh, fewer differences. So um, the idea was really to, uh, to drive the entire EU towards, towards one standard. And, it, and a lot of this is motivated by um, business, right? By commercial interests, by business interests, by the desire to have a more seamless uh, flow of information between member states. So it wasn't all this, you know, altruistic in the interest of the individual. That said, the more uniform sort of the, you know, the laws and regulations, the, often the easier it is to, um, to, to be able to identify and protect individual rights. So what we lost was, um, for those who are familiar with the directive, um, if, you, if you do kind of a side-by-side -side of the directive and the GDPR, you actually see that they're, they're very much the same law. They're really, you know, kind of article by article uh, across the board, 90, I would say 90% is about the same as what we had before. Now, if you think about that, it's really scary because the directive went into effect in 1995, but was starting to be drafted, you know, in the early 1990s. And so the law we have today, uh, which took full force in effect in 2018 and the GDPR is, you know, by that stage, a 30, almost a 30 year old law. Now, Doc, yeah. you, <laughs> you can appreciate, you know, how much the, the, the landscape has changed in that time, right? So you say protecting us from yesterday's, uh, uh, I forget how you say it. <laughs> protecting yesterday from last Thursday. Actually, right. the, the most quoted thing I've said about the GDPR recently was that it, it protects 2015 from 2012. So, right, but it's even more extreme yeah. than that, right? If you think about yeah. it, if you think about it being largely the same as the directive, we're talking, you know, it's protecting us from uh, web, not even web 2.0, we're talking about the early days. So, so for one thing, you know, it's, um, it's largely the same and, and it is quite dated in that respect. Now, the, the things that are different um, are meaningful. So for example, one of the major differences, and there aren't that many, but one of the major differences uh, between the directive and the GPR is consent. Um, the problem is there's been a, an upgrade to the standard uh, of what consent is 
but there hasn't been a calibration against what's happened in the digital uh, ecosystem and our day-to-day -day lives. So we've kind of upgraded a standard in the law, um, but not in proportion to the sweeping changes we've seen in the last 30 years. So, so if we look at, I mean, the way most people today see consent, it's like suddenly they're being asked to, you know, it used to be a website, which is a website. It's something that you go to, which actually you're not doing. You're actually calling up files. But, you know, you go to a website, and all of a sudden it's like, this site uses cookies. Um, and, uh, and you have to agree to a bunch of stuff, which differs enormously from one site to another. There's no way to keep track of it on our side. I think that's one of the biggest things that's changed, is that everybody on the server side is executing this law in a very different way. But in many cases, they're masking that they're doing exactly the same thing that they were doing before. You know, it's, you know, putting a, a notice in front that says, this site uses cookies to improve your experience with it, without ever saying, oh, we're going to be tracking you like a marked animal like we always did before, only now you're going to agree to it. Yeah. Um, and so, <clears throat> what, uh, you know, what's the, uh, I, I guess, well, I don't know, I don't, unpack a little bit for me what, how that happened and what we can do to counteract that. I have my own thoughts about that, but yeah, people so, heard too much of that already. So yeah, it's, it's a really important point. Um, so one of the things that's happened again in sort of the historical, you know, the evolution of, of the European framework we have today is we had uh, sort of parallel regulatory frameworks that were at play. Um, the GDPR, as I said, which replaced this idea of the, the data protection directive was um, not really dealing with the online environment as we knew it. Um, the, 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 the online environment in the EU was, was under a different framework, um, the e-privacy directive or the cookie directive, as some call it. Um, and actually what's interesting is under the cookie directive, um, there was a huge overhaul around um, 2013 because people were so annoyed by um, all of these pop-ups and cookie banners and, you know, click-throughs and all of these things that were impeding kind of their, you know, their, their experience online. Um, and businesses were complaining about, you know, this is distracting and it's, um, and it's, you know, inefficient and it's just a nuisance. And so there was an overhaul to the way that cookies were regulated um, in the EU to push the uh, responsibility away from sort of the user's problem, right, and move it into the browsers and, um, and uh, how they were designed and privacy by design and all of this and um, to have sort of default settings. Um, and so you saw that kind of shift uh, away from forcing the individual to have to manage all of this. Um, but the GDPR, because it wasn't really living in that environment, because it was dealing more with sort of traditional, what they call filing systems under the GDPR and databases, um, didn't really have the foresight, uh, didn't, didn't kind of predict, you know, the shift of our entire lives into really an online, you know, mobile device. Um, this is all before, right, the, before uh, mobile phones and smartphones were ubiquitous. It's before social media, it's before all the major platforms. It's, again, it's, it's, it's dated. And so it didn't foresee kind of the digital creep that would happen in our lives. Um, and it didn't, so it, what ha what's happened with consent is um, by upgrading the law between the directive and the GPR, by requiring a higher burden of consent, by shifting from the old framework where you could have, you know, implied sort of passive consent um, 
uh, opt-out consent. It shifted us into a, a higher standard, which requires this affirmative act, you know, specific, informed, unambiguous consent uh, evidenced by a clear affirmative action every instance. Well, we kind of end up in this nightmare scenario we had under the cookie directive, <laughs> where we now have this nuisance of consent, which can't possibly be meaningful, right? Because we're confronted with it hundreds and thousands of times a day. Um, so by upgrading the law, we've actually diluted uh, its effect. Um, so, so it's like if, if you hated the cookie notices before, you'll really hate them now. And they're even... And, <laughs> and yeah. now they're not just online in your browser, but they're on your device, they're in your smart devices, they're in your smart home, they're going to be in our, you know, in our smart world. Um, and the, imagine, you know, kind of the, <laughs> the cookie nuisance by walking around and kind of clicking, ticking boxes in the air um, is a scenario that's not far off under that kind of um, thinking. So I have a question for you then. So I think where we're going at this point is that the whole idea of consent is completely irrelevant. We've made it irrelevant. We're, we're now, as Doc likes to say, uh, we're running naked through a, well, the clothing metaphor anyway. We're running naked through a thorny forest, the thorns being all these various privacy policies and you know Facebook settings and browser settings and things that people could never hope to navigate in any real meaningful way. So if, if, con if consent is no longer even possible, um, what's the solution? And I, 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 you know, I think a lot of us, me and listening are sort of looking to people like you and Doc who are actively working towards the solution. And I wondered if you could sort of give us a, a little bit of a, an idea of, of what you hope we're working toward. Yeah, so I think there are certain circumstances under which this high bar of specific informed unambiguous consent can be met. There might be limited applications, for example, if there's a comprehensive research or medical study or something going on where there's an actual, you know, robust process for walking through uh, the framework in respect to data. There, you know, there are some limited instances where that might still be a legitimate basis. But in the sort of, you know, day-to-day -day of our digital lives and increasingly, you know, offline as well with our smart devices and our smart lives, um, it's, it's really not a good uh, basis to rely upon. And so, you know, I think there are two uh, sort of two gems, you know, within the GDPR that can really turn into perhaps bigger solutions. You know, one is around, of course, the data protection and privacy by design and default requirements. So similar to what happened with the cookies, um, kind of minimizing the, you know, the choices that the individual has to confront at every second and every day um, by stacking the deck in the favor of the individual. So the reality is the information asymmetries as between individuals and entities, right, are so stark, and they're growing starker because of things like digital feedback loops and, um, you know, interactive technologies that are growing smarter as we're interacting with them. And that information asymmetry is just growing wider and wider and wider. And so un unless we require, unless we use these little, you know, these little seeds in the law and in the regulation to to plant, you know, uh, an architecture where the deck is the deck is really stacked in the favor of the individual. Um, you know, none of it's going to be meaningful. So there, that's one that you said there were two. So that's one. Um, the other, which has been, um, which is related, uh, there's another uh, overlooked kind of provision in the GDPR around data portability. Now the way that the sort of literal uh, manifestation of that in the regulation and the interpretation uh, across the industry right now is, is not meaningful. It's superficial. 
But if we took that and we, again, if we stack the deck in the favor of the individual, and that's, you know, stacking the deck from a technology point of view, from a rights point of view, uh, from a commercial point of view, and, and, you know, we had something, we had true portability, not in the sense that you, you know, you go to Google takeout or you download your Facebook data and it's not organized and you can't do anything with it. Um, if we had true and meaningful portability and we truly could uh, interrupt sort of vendor lock-in, um, then we have another piece of it. But these are, these are just small pieces of it. Um, and so we, we have to look beyond the GDPR. I think it's been important in driving the conversation and bringing a lot of these issues to the forefront and finally, you know, forcing the, the global debate and dialogue, but it's, it's definitely not going to be a panacea. So uh, uh, my own answer to the question is not so much a GDPR answer, it's just an approach. And uh, for our readers, especially because our readers include a lot of hackers, I'm always recruiting people to do work, um, uh, is, is what the work we're doing with Customer Commons, which is where the individual proffers the terms and the, and the sites and services agree to them. And if the terms are simple and straightforward, like go ahead and show me ads, just make sure you're not tracking me, um, that's the first one that we have. Um, that's a fairly simple and straightforward thing. And if it's recorded on both sides and it's auditable downstream, now the technology for doing that is so far mostly absent, uh, but not entirely. So there is, there, there is some work already underway on that stuff and we need a lot more and we need that work funded. And so that's, a, that's, the, that's the technology solution. I think one of the, if we look at privacy and we may have talked about this on an earlier podcast, but if we look at it in the natural world the technology came before the norms and the norms came before the laws. And um, the technology, the original technologies, as you were saying earlier, Catherine, were clothing and shelter. Uh, clothing not only, you know, uh, protected us uh, from the elements, but, but also covered parts of our bodies we didn't wish to expose. And um, it also sent a signal that it's not okay for somebody else to reach inside our clothing and do something to our body or plant a tracking beacon on it. Or anything else like that, and um, and the norms arose from that, and and those norms are ones that differ by culture, but they're all well understood. Not, privacy is not especially controversial in the physical world because we worked this stuff out a long time ago. We've been in the technology world only for at, at most several decades, and uh, and in the current form of it, which is increasingly dominated by mobile devices that we carry in our pockets and purses. Um, it's really only about 10 years old, maybe even less. And so trying to come up with the norms for all of that is really hard, especially when, as Elizabeth pointed out, especially with smart devices, they're busy accumulating a, a really lopsided asymmetry of knowledge, um, not only about everything else, but about ourselves um, and what we do and where it is and the rest of it. And so we really need the, you know, what we have with laws like the GDPR is a bit of the cart before the horse. We, we did not have the norms that would help us inform the laws, except in the physical world. We have those norms. And so we have a, a pretty tall order on the technology side um, to start working this stuff out. So and when you, when you yeah. put it in those terms, Doc, I think it's actually really important and really um, helpful for people to understand the implications because, you know, I love what you say about, you know, tracking behavioral advertising, you know, cookies are effectively, that's stalking, right? It's stalking. If someone followed you around the yeah. physical world, we call it stalking. If someone, you know, bombarded you with these notifications and, and pop-ups, that would be harassment or nuisance, right? There are, if, if we, if we did what we did in the digital world, in the physical world, um, 
you can start to see how illegitimate all of this is, right? And how unsustainable it is. Um, and because everything is becoming the, the digital world, right? Because these, these, you know, the boundaries are really breaking down. I mean, even the line between, you know, you're sort of, you're an employee and you're, you're, you're not a non-employee or you're, you know, in employment context or not, or you're, uh, it, you're, it's, you're in a commercial context or not. All of these lines are breaking down and the, the, you know, the digital kind of real world divide is breaking down. And so um, we can't risk extending this broken framework to our entire lives. And what I worry about every day is that that's what's happening is we're taking for, we're just taking the assumptions handed to us. We're taking the business model as handed to us and we're letting this sort of digital creep happen. And we're not, we're not um, recognizing that that will become the standard for our lives full stop. And that's a huge risk. Yeah. I mean, and, and, and in many ways it feels like our frogs are pretty boiled at this point. Um, uh, I, I'm not sure they are. I think that, um, one of the good things about the online world is that it's very provisional and very easy to change. And, um, you know, we, <clears throat> we throw away our phones every 18 months or so, right? We're doing it a little more slowly now because innovations slow down on it a bit. Um, but, but still changing things in the, in the online world is a little bit faster and a little bit easier to do in some ways. But I worry about the same thing. I, I, I also worry whether or not our, 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 our frogs are fully boiled there. Let me, let me bring up a, another topic that you, you touched on in one post, which is, it was about ethics. Um, and, and the ethical dilemma that I'd like to throw in your direction and, and see how you volley it is in technology, what, generally what can be done will be done. You know, and we, until we find out what the limits of it are, and then we say, wait, we're not going to do that. Right. And, uh, we did this with weapons. We we did this especially with nuclear power, right? We wait a minute. We can blow up a city. Well, we're not going to do that again. Uh, that was bad. Uh, but and and I feel like we're in a similar position here, where it's been almost too easy. Is it not almost too easy? It's been way too easy to violate privacy as a matter of course for any large company, and they've excused it. They've excused themselves from it, um, and they're continuing to excuse themselves from it. Uh, to the degree that it, 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 one wonders if they're in the least bit aware of of the ethical dilemmas that they've caused. It, it's most obvious with Facebook, which I personally think is completely hopeless. Um, I, I don't. I, I worry not at all about them because I think they're screwed. But uh, Google, I do worry about a little bit because I think they could go either way. Um, uh, Apple, among the bigs, is the only one really taking a very strong privacy stance. But I'm, I'm wondering if it, you've you've thought. I think rather deeply about the ethics of things. I wonder if you want to say a few words about that. Sure. So um, the ethics for me are what fills, what bridges this, this gap between law lagging behind uh, technology, right? We, we've, I think we've all come to appreciate that the nature of lawmaking, of regulatory rulemaking is such that it will never catch up to the laws, um, nor should it in many ways, right? Because part, one of the core features, you know, of law and, and regulation is it needs to be relatively stable. So, um, and so that's not necessarily something that we want to change. Um, what we do want to change though, we, we want to address that, that gap so that there aren't as many, uh, bad actors taking advantage of it. Um, the, the problem is that ethics, of course, it necessitates a conversation around 
values, which often necess necessitates a conversation around culture, which means we have strong differences of opinion, uh, which means there is no, you know, there is no sort of global standard. There is no, um, and, and, you know, this is of course the challenge that we've always had in the digital world, which is, you know, norms are often rooted in society in culture in geography in, in nationality in, um, in, in, in ways that we don't have in the digital world. How do we have sort of global norms in a global environment, in a cross-border environment? Um, you know, a lot of people fear, are we just going to have digital borders pop up on the web, right? So um, I don't yeah. think it means that we, we don't address it, but I think that's how we need to think about the ethical aspect. And I, I don't think it's fluffy ethics, right? I think it's ethics with teeth. So, you know, as an example, um, the recent fine uh, by the French Data Protection Authority um, against Google, uh, or, you know, MasterCard was also fined um, in the EU. Um, these fines, you know, are really meaningless right now. They have some symbolic value, but in actual fact, what's happening is the, the cost is either being borne by, you know, the shareholders of a company or the end users of a product or service. Um, so they have absolutely no effect, <laughs> right? They have no effect. On well, I, I would say that the 50, 50 billion pounds or I don't know, pounds, uh, euros to, to Google is a parking ticket. Yeah. It's, you know. Well, and it's not even paid by the company, right? It's, it's again, it's, it's passed off to, it's passed uh, off. Yeah. So, so um, so going back to ethics, um, the question becomes, you know, what do we value? And um, we've certain we've had a paradigm shift around ethical, you know, say social impact investing and ESG and um, CSR and all these things. We've had that paradigm shift in some areas around perhaps, you know, climate change and probably not enough and, um, and other kinds of uh, sort of commercial incentives and, you know, social overhauls around our values. But um, we need the same kind of thing to happen um, in respect of our data, in respect of the digital environment. Um, but it has to have teeth. So, um, you know, it, this, it's, it's unfortunately um, as high as the, the, you know, political will, our attitudes, all of this are kind of aligning as high as all that is. I wonder if it's still uh, not quite as urgent as it needs to be. Um, and, you know, if it's going to take, you know, because we've had breach after breach after breach and, you know, one data disaster after another. And yet, in large part, you know, there are a lot of us doing this, but in large part, you know, everything, everyone goes about as if it were business as usual. Um, and, and again, a lot of that has to do with, you know, the nature of enforcement is not effective. It's not incentivizing, you know, or correcting behavior. Um, so it's a really complex issue. Um, but I wanted to go back to what you said about, you know, customer commons, because there was a really meaningful uh, milestone in intellectual property law around, you know, creative commons license. And the idea right. was that, you know, because it's not tenable, it's not practical to expect an individual, right, to have to negotiate their own terms, their own legal terms and rights against, um, with uneven bargaining power, you know, against entities and, and uh, counterparties. Um, the creative commons license was a shortcut. It was a shorthand. It was stacking the deck in the favor of um, to, to kind of uh, level the bargaining playing field and level you know the bargaining power between uh, counterparties to what's effectively a contract. And so 
I think customer commons um, is really important in this conversation because it could have a very similar effect where it's not so much that, you know, the way that pop-ups and cookie notices and consent is forcing each atomic individual on their own to make a decision they can't meaningfully make. Um, instead, it's this kind of pre-bargained, pre-negotiated, um, you know, in, in support of the individual and their rights, uh, uh, off-the-shelf tool that can be deployed in the way that, um, you know, the creative, com uh, excuse me, um, the creative commons license was. So it's, it's really, uh, to me is a really interesting tool. Yeah. It, it, it's interesting having been around when, um, uh, Larry Leslie came up with the idea for, uh, creative commons that it was after he lost, uh, Eldridge versus Ashcroft, uh, yeah. in front of the Supreme court, he wanted to change, uh, the law as it were, you know, to limit copyright duration. And he, what he did was he addressed at least part of his, his complaint with um, changing practice. He made it easy to change practice. And yeah. that's pretty much the idea with customer commons as well. We're not going to change any laws. We, we can change practice. And contract has been around forever. It's well understood. It's not a hard thing to do. And a lot of contract is very casual and low, um, not, not a lot of labor involved in it. There's a common understanding between any two parties and, and agreements can be reached. Um, a lot of the work that we have to do there is um, really make up for the, and it's not so much a mistake, it was, it was what we needed in 1995, which is uh, the client-server architecture, which is we were all a dial-up. Um, it made sense for the servers to have most of the power, um, most of the computing powers on their side. The, uh, the lines were asymmetrical uh, in terms of data bandwidth and the rest of it. It's probably always going to be that way to some degree. Um, but we have to beef up what we have on our sides, like record keeping. You know, I mean, right now, nobody knows what the hell is in their machine in terms of cookies. You take a look at those cookies. They're almost completely opaque. Uh, you don't know what's going on there. You don't know what records are being kept elsewhere about what you're doing. But we can simplify that. I think a lot of that's very simplifiable. Um, given that we have a, a limited time, I want to go to a, a different topic, which is uh, we'll be talking about on other podcasts as well, and maybe subsequent ones with you, uh, which is self-sovereignty, the, the notion of self-sovereign identity. Uh, that's, I don't know, to what extent is it a new thing or a new name for an old thing or both? <laughs> it's both. Um, yeah. So, you know, this is a term that causes a lot of consternation um, for those of us in the industry, and it causes a lot of controversy for those in and out of the industry. Um, it's wrapped up in all kinds of uh, socio-political, uh, cultural connotations um, and fears and insecurities. Um, so whether, you know, that's the correct term or not, um, the idea is to start decoupling you know, the ends from the means. And what I mean by that is um, we're building a lot of tools without thinking about how do we get to what we actually want to achieve. And the way I think about uh, self-sovereignty, self-sovereign identity, self-sovereignty in relation to data is um, if what we actually want to achieve is, you know, individual autonomy, um, if we want to preserve, you know, a space for, you know, you to be you and, and for me to be myself and um, for, for to preserve a space around the individual for the autonomy and expression and um, individuality and identity. Um, it's, you know, what are the best 
uh, tools to get there rather than evaluating sort of technology or tools or framework uh, for its own sake. Um, so, you know, this goes back to the conversation around uh, what's wrong with the GDPR, how do we fix it? What about something like customer commons, which is to say that, you know, focusing exclusively on um, the individual or one way uh, of doing things might not be our best route towards those higher aims of individual autonomy and freedom and expression. Um, so that's what it means to me. Um, you know, it doesn't mean, it, it doesn't necessarily look the same for everyone. That's kind of the whole point of it, right? Is that, um, you know, we have a diverse society. Um, if autonomy matters, then my autonomy might look different from your autonomy. Um, my identity will look different from your identity. Um, and so it can't be defined and handed down to us, you know, by uh, organizations or uh, technology even. I have, I have a question actually sort of for both of y'all. So given Doc's last question, but also going back to what Doc said earlier is that we're all pretty well boiled frogs at this point. My question is once we've given up so much autonomy at this point, um, how much of it can we really get back? And I, I guess my question is really just that there's so much data available out there now. It's just gone. You, you know, you can't, you can't pull the data back in, right? So, I mean, is this, is our generation just screwed? Is it, are we just setting it up for, for the next generations and, you know, people who, you know, have yet, <laughs> yet to exist and, and can, can start from a, a, a better position of being able to protect all of that? Or I, I, I guess I'm just wondering, um, you know, where we go from here, given that we are already at least parboiled. Yeah. <laughs> All our data horses are out of the barn, and it wasn't even a barn. Yeah. Out of horses, and, <laughs> we have yeah. to build the barn, <laughs> new barn, because we, yeah, I mean, the horses are, well, they're, you're in California, the horses are in Iowa. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. And they're augmented with, uh, with robotics. Lasers. Um, they have lasers. <laughs> Yeah, I, so I love um, uh, Shoshana Zuboff, um, you know, Harvard economist, scholar, and uh, author of the recent uh, Age of Surveillance Capitalism uh, book, which, you know, Doc is also very familiar with. Um, you know, I asked her this at her book event last week, and, uh, you know, are we, are we doomed? And, uh, you know, her view was humans have created this, you know, and actually a very small select few of humans, uh, <laughs> a, a select few of individuals uh, created this situation and not really all that long ago. And so um, that should, in her view, make us hopeful that a select few uh, individuals could, could undo some of it. Now, my view is a little bit different because I think, again, if you look at um, the nature of technology where it is now. And if you look at things like, you know, the feedback effect and, um, and self-learning, self-training, um, you know, intelligent technologies, um, I think some of that is going to require a greater effort. But I do think there is something to be said for that perspective on, you know, it hasn't always been this way. You know, there was, there was a web before targeted advertising, right? There was a digital ecosystem before it went wrong, a concerted effort on the part of, you know, a few individuals at a few companies really created this. Um, but, but it's been buffered up by a lot of illegitimate um, props like the legal frameworks in place, um, like the business model in place, uh, like a lot of things that we take for granted as if they have to be that way, but they really don't and really don't hold any water. Um, 
so as we start to expose those things, um, you know, it is exhausting. It does feel, <laughs> I think Doc and I were just talking about this, you know, it does feel uh, in many ways like the ship has sailed, but it hasn't. Um, I, I don't think we have, you know, forever to address this, um, but I am still hopeful. I, I have a, a, my own view on this is that uh, those are shitty horses that left the barn. Um, <laughs> They're, 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 they're mostly lame. They're irrelevant. Um, I, most of the data that we have that's valuable is frankly on our machines and they're in our, it's in our heads. It's not, it, may not even, it may not even be explicit. It may be purely the tacit knowledge that we have of ourselves and the world that it is, cannot be made explicit. And, um, and, and, and so an awful lot of the, I mean, I'm just, I'm daily amazed at how bad the ad tech system is at guessing what I want and who I am really re remarkably bad. And I think most people, even in the business will tell you that they, they mess up most of the time. And another problem with that, with, with that model, with the, with the ad tech model, the tracking based advertising model is that all it wants to do is sell you stuff and it wants to, and it, and it, and it works on the same um, metrics of that, that we had with, with junk mail which we also hated uh, and which is that, you know, a very small percentage will be accurate. A very small percentage will get a sale. A very small percentage will get, make an impression. Um, but enough of that will happen. So to, to justify it, it's even, it's far more lopsided online than it is in the, in say the direct mail world, direct mail, the great result may be, you know, uh, five clicks out of, out of a hundred. Online, it's like, a, you know, a thousand clicks, you know, one thousandth of them. Uh, it's, I, I mean, I, I, going back to the ethical question, I, I once consulted a company. It was a one-time thing. Uh, they were interested in what I had to say, and, and I went to their place in Arizona, and, they, and, and I, we talked about retargeting. And, I, and they said, do you know how many times it takes for somebody to see an ad before they'll click on it? And I mean, I was thinking of the, the, there was an onion headline that said, woman stalked across eight websites by <laughs> shoe advertisement, right? They said it was 72. Yeah. And they said, how do you know whether the 72nd time was that they just missed and hit the X instead of the Y? And they said, we don't know, but we just know it takes 72. And, and I said, do you realize how much annoyance that produces? They didn't care. They did not care. And, and that's, to, to me, that's, you know, that's the mentality of the tobacco industry. It's the mentality of the, of the, you know, illicit drug industry. It's, it's where you ignore all of the negative externalities. And at some point we're going to stop ignoring them, fully stop ignoring them. And, and in the meantime, we're sort of lulled, you know, part of the way that we're parboiled frogs is that, um, it's pretty hard to find a harm in something that is as lame as that business really is. It's incredibly lame. It, it sucks at what it does. Um, and there are more cases all the time of, of companies that are pulling their money out because it doesn't produce. Um, an interesting thing is that somewhere between one and $2 trillion has been spent on tracking based advertising so far and not one single brand known to the world has been made by it. Not one. Um, and that's a remarkable non-achievement. And, and for the big brand companies, the Procter & Gamble's of the world and the, um, 
you know, the L'Oreal's and the, you know, uh, uh, you know, the cereal makers and the, the car makers, uh, bothering people with personalized ads, it doesn't work very well. It really just doesn't work very well. And, and people in the business will tell you it does, but it actually doesn't, not in the, not in the largest sense. Um, but it, you know, so I, I, I'm, I'm somewhat hopeful for those reasons as well, because I think there are much, much better ways in the online world for people to signal each other than the ones we've come up with so far. It's very, very early. We've only been at this a short time. Uh, one grace of having been on the planet as long as I have is I've seen so many things fail, <laughs> you know, and big things, things that you thought were going to last forever. You know, network television is busy just falling completely apart right now. You know, just falling apart. Um, cable TV, as we do it, is going to be gone. Over-the-air TV is already almost gone. Uh, radio is on its way out, and I'm very, very fond of radio. I was in radio for a long time. I was very interested in it for a long time. I know way too much about how it works. And you talk to people in radio, and it's like talking to people sitting around railroad tracks talking about steam power in 1925. I mean, it's... You, you can't recruit people to work at a radio station doing engineering now when there's so much more money and more interesting things to do somewhere else. Um, and I think it's, it's going to be like that with, with the advertising business, which is what's funding all this stuff. It, it, it works so badly. Uh, and, and at some point the publishers too, and Linux drills almost alone at this, but the publishers too are going to say, wait a minute, why did we farm out, our revenue production to these creeps, these robot creeps that are, that are, that are abusing our readers. Why did we do that? And they're not doing it yet. I'm, I'm amazed that they're not. Um, a few of them are, but most of them are not, but they will. Um, and it's, it's just a matter of time. So I'm, I remain optimistic at, at that level. Well, on that note, it's good to end on a, on optimism. <laughs> no matter how brief, a brief moment of optimism. No. Yeah. Um, well, thank you both. Thank you, Elizabeth, and thank you, Doc. Um, thank you for having thank me. Thank you. Thank you for we'll everyone who's listened and made it this long into the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Let us know if you got here. <laughs> yes. Please, please come. Is there anyone out there? If there's yeah. anyone out there, please email us at podcast <laughs> at Linux Journal. Yeah. We will probably respond. <laughs>